Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. In this episode, I'll be looking at the American Empire and the contradictions between the different conceptions of liberty or freedom that that empire has used for its ideological justification and the contradictions and tensions between that ideology and the reality of its rule. I'll also be using that discussion to put the Trump presidency, and particularly some of the tensions between that presidency and the military, in a historical context, and we end with some speculation about where the 2020 election is headed. My guest to discuss all of this is Professor James Kurth. Uh, Professor Kurth is the Claude C. Smith Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Swarthmore College, where he teaches defense policy, foreign policy, and international relations. In 2004, he became the editor of Orbis, a professional journal in international relations and U.S. foreign policy. Kurth received his B.A. in history from Stanford University, his M.A. and Ph.D. in political science from Harvard University, where he was mentored by Samuel Huntingdon. Kurth taught at Harvard from 67 to 73, and has taught at Swarthmore since then. He's also been a visiting member for the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton, visiting professor of political science at the University of California at San Diego, and visiting professor of strategy at the U.S. Naval War College. At the War College, Kurth was chairman of the strategy and campaign department, an advisor for the Chief of Naval Operations Strategic Studies Group, and the recipient of the Department of the Navy Medal for Meritorious Civilian Service. Professor Kurth is himself a decorated veteran, having served in the Navy in the 60s. He is the author of nearly 100 articles and editor of two books. He publishes frequently in The National Interest, The American Interest, National Review, The American Conservative, Orbis, Foreign Policy, and Current History. He has given testimony before committees of the United States Congress on a number of occasions. So he's definitely someone who is exceptionally well qualified to discuss uh, American foreign policy. Um, as usual, when I have someone on of sort of a different ideological worldview to myself, I'm not going to prefigure the conversation uh, with sort of any extended remarks. I'm just going to give it to you as um, we had it, and, you know, you can make your own mind up about it. Um, although I will say, I think we actually ended up agreeing um, on quite a lot when it came to a lot of the theoretical and ideological stuff. Um, there's some parts of the analysis I, you know, push back on, or perhaps I don't agree with. But overall, I learned a lot from this conversation, particularly about the tensions between the military and the Trump presidency. That was really, really clarifying for me and gave me a new way of um, thinking about it. So I really enjoyed this conversation and um, got a lot out of it. And I hope you do too. Just before we get started, if you enjoy these sorts of conversations, you know, advertisement-free, long-form, engaged, in-depth. Um, a lot goes into making them. 
So if you want to support that, um, this podcast works on a suggested donation basis. It's free to listen to, and it always will be. Um, but if you could spare a voluntary donation of $2 an episode, um, I would love to do love to have that. And you can contribute on patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. Um, we also uh, now have a merchandise store where you can buy t-shirts, mugs, sweaters with the podcast's logo on. Links to that are on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. If in all the current crises we're going through, you're not in a position to financially contribute, that's totally fine. Uh, One other thing you can do to support the podcast is to recommend it to friends or share on your social media. And as always, a really big thank you to anyone who does any of those things. I'm genuinely grateful, and you're making the podcast possible. So, with that all done, let's get straight to it. This is um, a long conversation, but I think you'll find a really interesting one. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you Professor James Kurth. I am joined today by Professor James Kurth. Professor, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Toby. I'm glad to be here. So for any listeners who haven't heard of you or encountered your work before, um, how do you self-describe? What do you do? What are the issues you like to read and write and teach and talk about? Well, officially, I'm a political scientist, but I've never believed that there's such a thing as a political science. Uh, There's a political politicized science, but there's really political art or political understanding. And I guess I'd say that's what I do. And actually, the discipline, so to speak, closest to political science, from my perspective, is history. So I always try to interpret contemporary politics in terms of past history. And now within that, uh, my specialties tend to be what we call in the subfield international politics, i.e. international security and international political economy and especially foreign policy, defense policy, military strategy. Cool. And how do you self-identify in terms of, like, your um, ideological views? Do you still go by the label conservative, or do you have, like, a more specific uh, tag that you put on yourself? Well, um, I guess I could go by the label conservative, as it was often used in Europe through much of the 20th century. The conservatism of a person such as Charles de Gaulle, president of France, that would be a kind of perspective I would have identified had I been in Europe, and especially in France at the time. Now, we use the term conservative here in the United States, but in some of my uh, publications, not necessarily the ones in the particular book that I've recently published, but I point out that conservatism in America is essentially conserving liberalism. In other words, the original liberalism, the Lockean liberalism that so much shaped America during its founding and in the 19th and early 20th century. That's what actually conservatism has been, to try to preserve that 
against the later transformation of the old liberalism into the New Deal and great society progressivism. So uh, I'm not, I don't really identify with either version of liberalism, the 19th century version or the 20th century version. Uh, so I would say that, yes, yes, a European-style conservative. Uh, of course, I'm in America now in the 21st century, and there are not very many of those European-style uh, uh, conservatives. But of recent writers, I would have identified very closely with Patrick Deneen's critique of liberalism in his recent book, uh, Why Liberalism Failed. We might get back into that because that's um, a sort of set of arguments I've been engaged with. But let's turn to your um, upcoming book, The American Way of Empire. Um, I actually just wanted to start with the word uh, empire because um, I feel like that's a word that people tend to be quite reluctant to use when talking about, um, well, let's just use your word and say the American empire. Um, that it's almost more like critics of the American empire use the word empire and defenders of it are a lot more reluctant to. Why did you choose that word and like, what does it mean to you? Well, because I believe the word empire most accurately describes America's role in the world, and especially within the New World, the Western Hemisphere, since 1898, and then the free world, i.e. much of uh, Europe, East Asia, as well as Latin America during the Cold War. And I believe that uh, actually describes it. Now, of course, just like there, I said earlier, that actually in America, conservatism is defending liberalism. Actually, in America, what we, uh, what we call kind of, uh, oh, an American way of international relations leadership is actually defending, yes, yes, an American empire. Uh, in other words, from a European perspective, the way that the United States has had relationships with other countries, especially countries that are smaller and weaker and less developed than itself, that's a, Europeans understand you can have many degrees of influence and power over smaller countries. You can have formal colonial rule. That's very familiar, and that's what Americans normally think, like the British Empire and the American colonies. But Britain knows, for example, well, you can have formal colonial rule, but then you can have indirect rule, informal rule. You can have countries that have outer independence, uh, but actually a great deal of dependence. Uh, for example, in the British Empire, of course, there were formal colonies. For example, the formal direct rule of Britain in British India. But then about one third of India was under the so-called princely states that the Maharajas, and they had a good deal of ceremonial, uh, 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 formal independence, but everybody knew they were dependent militarily, economically, and politically. A little bit more subtly, a little bit more subtly, uh, could have been, uh, let's say, Canada and New Zealand and Australia in the first uh, half of the 20th century. They were members of the British Commonwealth, uh, they, of course, had lots of uh, local independent um, uh, rule. They, were, they elected their own governments. 
They were formally under the uh, rule of the queen or the king. Uh, but, of course, when it came to war, they often joined Britain under the imperial general staff. They were tied in with the British economy through an imperial preference. They had governments very similar to the British government. Uh, they had their own parliaments, They had, but, but under the formal authority of the common queen or king. Yeah, I mean, that all makes total sense to me. Why do you think there is a discomfort with using the empire word? Because people don't. I'd be strained to think of a recent US president who would have described the system that way. I mean, maybe... Oh, well, absolutely so. There's a double reason for that. There's a historical reason and there's a diplomatic reason, or you might say a cultural reason or a strategic reason. The historical and cultural was that the United States became the United States in a declaration against a formal empire. And for the next century, that is say the British Empire, and for the next century, it got a lot of legitimation at home and abroad of saying, we're different than other countries. We're against empire, like British Empire and French Empire and so on, uh, Spanish Empire. Uh, uh, we stand for uh, free republics. Well, so, of course, to ever acknowledge that we might have something in common with the British Empire or the French Empire or even the Spanish Empire, uh, that would be very, very uh, difficult. And when things are so difficult to think about, people don't think about it. And they essentially avoid uh, looking at those realities. So the legitimacy of the United States at home and abroad rested upon it being perceived by itself and by others as an uh, anti-empire. Well, when it actually did set up a, an empire of informal, indirect rule, military protectorates, economic dependencies, political uh, sort of political uh, sort of uh, countries that appear, that outer form sort of looked like the United States, like the Latin American republics, that's a kind of informal empire. Uh, when we actually did that after 1898 in Latin America and to some extent did that in Western Europe and East Asia after 1945, then, of course, by that time, the word empire was in very bad odor internationally. And, of course, the Americans uh, couldn't accept the fact that they were an empire like that old British and French empire and Spanish empire that they displaced. So there was a kind of double reason, uh, one for each century, although in a way in each century, the 19th and 20th, although in, in a way in each century a little bit of both of those reasons for the United States rejecting being called an empire or even thinking of itself that way. And it's not just um, a question of labels. That's sort of a contradiction that's done some work in the world. I'm reminded of um, Ho Chi Minh going to, I think it was uh, Woodrow Wilson, and saying, oh, great, you know, you've got this national self-determination, no more empires, every people in the world has its own rule, and, you know, autonomous government and so on. Um, we'd like some of that over here, please. And, of course, it turns out, actually, that's not quite what the US had meant by that. And um, you sort of, as, as a Marxist would say, you become involved in a contradiction. Very well said, Ho Chi Minh, and also you, Tony. That's a very famous mo moment uh, at, at or near the Versailles uh, Conference. Uh, Ho Chi Minh was in Paris at the time, and uh, yes, yes, he was disappointed by Wilson. Then the next time around, in 1945, 
when the Ho, when Ho Chi Minh had founded what would become the Viet Minh, officially a national liberation movement uh, of Vietnam against French colonial rule, practically, of course, a communist-led movement. Once again, then, when um, Ho Chi, when Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Minh declared their independence from France in 1945, they actually put in words from the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Well, of course, this didn't persuade the United States leaders of the day, Harry Truman and the later Dwight Eisenhower and so on. Uh, they, so, uh, yes, yes, Ho Chi Minh might have been disappointed twice uh, after the First World War and after the Second World War. Well, the United States interpreted their declaration of independence not to apply to the Vietnamese. In the first case, they interpreted it because Wilson was, in fact, yes, what we would now call a systemic racist. He very much was a favor of white supremacy, having grown up in the South. Uh, and then after 1945, we were very much anti-communist. And, and from the point of view of the Truman administration, later administrations, they thought, and, and this is really accurate, that Ho Chi Minh was, amongst other things, a communist. And that was enough for them. Um, a, a values question occurs to me here. And I'm just thinking of this now. But in uh, basically, I think all of the history you're describing, as well as I think in just sort of contemporary everyday usage, we see the word empire as diametrically opposed to the value of freedom. Like an empire is sort of, at least for the people being ruled by the empire, whether directly or indirectly, sort of necessarily unfree. And America has always placed that value of freedom very centrally to its self-justification. Um, I guess my question to you is, do you think that's, that um, dichotomy between empire and freedom is right? Or could you create an argument that freedom could be something that's promoted and preserved by empire? A uh, very thoughtful question. Now, within the discourse, if you will, of modern political philosophy, uh, where we see a sharp contrast between the modern values, let's say of the French Revolution, but more broadly of the modern Enlightenment, uh, liberty, fraternity, uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity, uh, we certainly see those values much more advanced than the old religious values of Reformation Protestantism or of uh, Thomistic Catholicism or even earlier Augustinian Catholicism. We certainly see liberty, equality, and fraternity being modern values much superior. Now, within that discourse, uh, stipulating we're talking about things within that modern trinity of values, then, of course, more than any country ever, the United States has at its core identity liberty or freedom. The country that came closest to that, uh, especially in the 19th century, was, of course, Britain. Uh, other countries, those on the continent and certainly beyond the continent of Europe, had a rather different prioritization of values. Now, within the United States, because it was anti-colonial, uh, anti anti-imperial, they, of course, developed the idea that freedom was very, very uh, contradictory to empire. Uh, now, to square that contradiction between the growing role of the United States in terms of power and influence, first in Latin America and then beyond, then the way they square that contradiction, as I was implying, they, uh, they encourage 
the Latin American countries, which would become their dependencies in reality, uh, uh, they encouraged them to have the outer forms of a liberal republic. So that's why virtually every Latin American country, ever since their Latin American the wars of independence against Spain, why virtually every Latin American country has some version of a formal republic. Now, that was useful for legitimacy within the country. It was also certainly useful for legitimacy vis-a-vis the United States. And even better, it was uh, better from the point of view of the United States that it could point to its own people and to other people. Well, just because we have a lot of power and influence in Latin America doesn't mean that they're free. See, they've got a republic. Uh, And so the very American uh, uh, focused indeed, central identity around liberty um, uh, and freedom means that whenever a real world contradicts that identity, they have to construct uh, some kind of, yes, 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 fiction, uh, even if it's only a Potemkin republic, a pseudo-republic, to sort of say, well, this country that we have so much influence is free, and all the better they are choosing to follow us. See, they have a republic too. So yes, uh, I think you put your finger on a very important uh, dynamic. Although even just staying in um, South America, there's moments where even the sort of pretense falls away. So I'm thinking of um, Pinochet uh, overthrowing Allende in Chile. There wasn't even, like, the dressing up of that within a sort of, um, uh, like, nominally sort of liberal democratic form. It was just, we don't want this guy, and we want this other guy, and the sort of, I don't know, uh, Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky critics of uh, American imperialism would sort of point at that and say, this is where the mask slips, and this is th- that's actually just what's been going on the whole time, and everything else is kind of like a window dressing to it. Yes, the mask certainly uh, slipped, and it was observed even by Americans at the time. In other words, the overthrow of Allende in 1973 and the long era of Pinochet it faded out sort of step by step in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, the mask certainly slipped. And Henry Kissinger, who was the national security advisor and uh, the secretary of state at that time, uh, he said, uh, p- privately, of course, we're not going to allow uh, another, com- uh, another communist country to be set up in Latin America. Uh, and, uh, and, so, and so he, that was quite frank. But of course, it was also <laughs> quite private. What uh, the United States did then, and this was a Republican administration, but earlier Lyndon Johnson had done something similar in the Dominican Republic in 1965. What they said is, well, uh, there is this country that is a liberal democracy just like us. Uh, oh, but now it is true, conservative landlords and military people, they've had a lot of power, uh, and we've been trying to reform that. We've been trying to reform that, just like with our wonderful Alliance for, Prog- uh, Alliance for Progress system that the uh, Kennedy administration set up, and a host of other things that the Johnson and even the Nixon administration set up. We're reforming that, reforming that, but it's being hijacked. 
it's being hijacked by these Marxists. Uh, and Allende, well, he's not really a liberal Democrat. He's against liberal Democrat. He's actually a Marxist, and indeed he's supported by the Soviet Union. So you see, he's anti-freedom, uh, uh, and therefore the fact that, that uh, the military overthrew that, uh, that a Marxist uh, dictator or emerging Marxist dictator, that was a regrettable but only temporary move uh, back towards freedom. But of course, Pinochet didn't move back towards freedom. But this would mean that, they, that the, uh, uh, the Nixon and Ford administration, even the Carter administration, certainly the Reagan administration, said, well, uh, of course, this is a strong dictator, but we're criticizing him. We've set up special parts of the State Department, the Bureau of Human Rights. We're criticizing him. Oh, and incidentally, look at all those economic reforms going on. Why, the University of Chicago Economics Department are bringing about freedom of the economy. So when we get a really free economy, then Pinochet will fade away. Well, actually, he did fade away, not quite for that reason, but he did fade away with a lot of other authoritarian regimes, including the Soviet one and the Soviet allies in the late 80s and early 90s. But so, in other words, the United States, even when the mask slips, the government, be it Democratic or Republican administration, doesn't say it slipped. No, no, no. It's just a temporary aberration, a kind of correction. And then, because we'll be supporting it, since we do have our strong political influence, and we're encouraging them to become a liberal democracy, we're doing what we can for that, everything will be all right in the future. Of course, the future is on an ever-receding horizon. I'm going to make one point which is like an editorial comment of just my own personal political views, and you can give me a response so we can move on. One of the things I found quite interesting about the um, Allende incident is I think it reveals a sort of philosophic confusion that a lot of... Um, I think you would use the word classical liberal, I use the word like libertarian, but particularly like economic libertarians have, that they're very focused on a particular like um, negative liberty idea of freedom. And you see this in something like Isaiah Berlin, where he says you've got to have negative liberty and basically anything else that way, political authoritarianism lies. And you actually, that's not borne out historically. Like, people who believe very strongly in a sort of economic, pro-market, negative liberty conception, um, as the Chicago School quite clearly demonstrates, are often quite happy to work with political authoritarians. And the relationship between economic liberty or negative liberty and a sort of positive democratic conception of freedom is actually much murkier in history. Like, they run together and they run apart. And I think there's a sort of move to, like, say, there's just one thing and it all just reduces to economic freedom or something. And it's just not the case. Like, you know, free markets and that sort of freedom has sometimes been allies with democracy and it's sometimes been allies with authoritarianism. So that's my short editorial on that. Well, uh, Toby, uh, had, I'm glad you made that short editorial, because had you asked me a question about that, I would have gone on and on and on very long, and I would have ended up exactly where your short editorial did. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think I, ever since uh, I first read Isaiah Berlin in graduate school, I thought there was something the prob uh, some problem with his concept of negative liberty, and precisely I, I noticed 
that not only philosophically coming from Isaiah Berlin, but practically coming from the United States and Great Britain in the years after he penned his essay, uh, that more and more economic liberty came to the fore. And other things, such as uh, political liberty, social liberty, and not so much. Um, now, in America and Britain, because they're so permeated by a liberal ideology, ultimately the other versions of liberty were either preserved or even promoted. But in other countries that didn't have that tr- tradition, the move towards economic liberty, backed, of course, by uh, the United Kingdom at one point and the United States at later points, backed by that could then become, just like Chile was the perfect example, could become uh, the uh, legitimation amongst the freedom-loving powers, the legitimation of a ruthless authoritarian regime that gave lots of liberty to very big, crony capitalist business, yes, but liberty for nobody else. So I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, Now, this does mean that embedded in my answer, more or less a mirror in my mind of your editorial comment, embedded in my answer is a fact that there is a better way. And at this point, uh, Isaiah Berlin, of course, utterly dismisses, because I believe that true liberty is found in, dare I say, uh, positive liberty rightly understood, to paraphrase Tocqueville, or positive liberty as seen through practical wisdom, as Aristotle would say. Yes, not positive liberty with the parade of horrors that Isaiah Berlin, Berlin quite properly pointed to. In other words, uh, Marxism especially, but other forms of authoritarian uh, 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 politics that justified itself by making uh, uh, people more free, uh, as Rousseau said, forced to be free. That, of course, is what uh, Isaiah Berlin was very alarmed about improperly. But I do think there is a better balance. To use, again, the modern language, I believe uh, that the phrase liberty, equality, and fraternity got something right at least as long as we're discussing within the modern uh, uh, ideologies, got something right. Uh, And the best thing is a balance, a proportion balance between those three in any one political system. If any one begins to crowd out the other two, things go very bad. I can explain that in more detail in a moment. But I do believe in the United States, liberty, uh, uh, especially refracted to its economic version, reached the point that it crowded out everything else, especially since in the some 30 years since the end of the Cold War. And the results now is coming crashing down within the United States. And, of course, the crashing down of the American empire. Yeah, I think... um... I'm editorialising a bit on this one, but I think we might have slightly different framing devices here because I see the the debate between like um, um, a sort of thin liberalism that sort of has a narrow conception of liberty and really nothing else, um, and a sort of more balanced set of values. That's a debate between liberalism and its critics, but it's, I think, also a debate within liberalism. I think starting even in, like, 
the 1860s, 70s, you can sort of see two diverging semantic fields. One which is the forerunner of, like, libertarianism, and the other which is the forerunner of a, a sort of more progressive liberalism and FDR and the New Deal and all of that. And I think the difference, if I can get it at its simplest, is that the sort of economic negative liberty libertarian version really just says freedom is just absence of interference that's a good thing and like that and particularly absence of economic interference they're not so fussed about other forms of interference and, and you know markets good government bad and that's sort of really all you need to know whereas the sort of more progressive liberalism is a much more complex bundle of goods that includes freedom and individuality but also concerns about society and sociability and progress and reason and so on. And like you say, they support each other, but they also constrain each other. So I, I would be an advocate of that latter form of, of uh, liberalism. I'll pause there. Well, I think uh, the way you're describing it, and it's not an accident that you've chosen FDR and the New Deal, I'll say something about that in just a moment. It's not an accident that you've uh, cho uh, chosen uh, that balance, as you said, which I do see similar to what I'm saying. Now, uh, uh, it is the case that in recognition of the cost of economic liberty run amok, which meant that decade after decade, more and more power would accrue to the bigger and bigger winners of economic liberty. In other words, as you move from, let's say, the middle of the 19th, well, the early, late ninth, the early part of the second half of the 19th century, small farmers, small businessmen, small proprietors around the small towns around America, as you move to more and more consolidation, uh, the gilded age, the age of trust, clearly economic liberty advanced by the Republican Party of the day and justified by, uh, of course, the uh, economic liberalism of the day, uh, 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 all of that had issued in uh, more and more power to fewer and fewer uh, people engaged in complete economic liberty. And, and there were two movements against that, the populist movement and the progressive movement. And in the end, the progressive movement came to full power with FDR because of the catastrophe that uh, economic liberty had uh, resulted in uh, in the 20s and then the Great Depression of the early 30s. So uh, absolutely right. Now, it happens when I look back on American history, and I personally find the best balance between liberty, equality, and fraternity, I always have said it was under FDR and the New Deal. So I am, if you will, in, in now in the very, in the uh, entering into the third decade of the 21st century, I'm sort of an ambassador from long ago and far away, the America, the New Deal. Definitely so. But there is a problem with progressivism. It was progressivism that brought into being the New Deal. Uh, and uh, Roosevelt, of course, was the exemplar of that. Uh, and although he didn't have a general theory of progressivism, he was totally immersed in the progressive uh, uh, way of looking at things, having been a very important person in the Wilson administration, which was the first and somewhat aborted progressive administration. Now, in the process, though, the progressive way, both its ideology and its practice, 
although it was extremely good in correcting for the imbalances uh, at the time it was set up, including such things as the Social Security Act and the Labor Relations Act, many of the New Deal public works programs, and a host of others. It was extremely good at that. The, the progressive ideology is this, a very educated, uh, far-seeing elite, those who are, have gone to public administration schools or the best and the brightest in other schools, such as Harvard. Uh, after all, FDR was a graduate of Harvard. Uh, many, of the, many of the people who headed up his uh, New Deal administration were from Harvard, especially Harvard Law School. Many were also from Yale and from Princeton. Uh, uh, the basic idea of progressivism, uh, an educated elite in political science, for example, the very concept of political science was developed by Woodrow Wilson and similar progressives at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. Politics can become a science. Well, I said at the very beginning of our podcast, that's what, not what I believe in. Uh, and, uh, and so progressives thought, well, a few know what's best for the many. Well, when that became institutionalized in the so-called alphabet agencies of the New Deal, and they continued on and on and on and got bigger and bigger and clumsier and clumsier and heavier and heavier, then they lost that poised sense of balance, that nimbleness, that pragmatism of FDR, of pivoting quickly to a problem and solving it with the government coming in and enabling others to work together to solve the problem. All of that was lost, especially uh, in the last 30 or so years. And so progressivism that had the best solution of this balance in American history, nonetheless set up something, its own contradiction, that it become heavier and heavier and become ultimately the opposite of that balance, but would squeeze the life out of the balance proportion. So that makes the whole, underneath what I'm saying, is the conception, the modern ideologies, liberty, equality, and fraternity, and even the modern way of a balance, progressivism, contains the seeds of its own destruction. Let me, um, let me give you my response as a progressive, and then we'll move back to foreign policy. Um, I think there's definitely, like, a lot in that story, and there's certainly always um, a tension within progressivism between its more, like, elitist elements and its more, like, universalizing instincts. I'm not sure I would say, like, it's sort of like a fatal flaw in progressivism's DNA. I would just use your word of balance. It's a balance, and the thing about a balance is it can become unbalanced. So to take the sort of case of, like, elite rule, I think that sort of falls afoul of this liberal idea of limited and accountable power, which originally was sort of formulated in response to the divine right of kings, but then it's also been used to sort of um, attack the um, arbitrary and unaccountable power of, like, huge corporations, say, in the, in the New Deal era. And I think you can also... Um, utilize that um, against a sort of 
top-down um, technocratic approach to to governance. Um, I would say I, I I see the question of like the overall size and scope of government as separate from the issues of its accessibility, its openness, its transparency, and um, its arbitrariness. So, like I said, I think like political liberty and economic liberty can run different ways. You can have one and not the other. So you can have um, states that are quite social democratic and have quite big welfare states but are still very politically liberal and open and so on you can have the the converse and this is a problem that runs through it's a tension that runs through progressivism right through back to the beginning so the the critique of john stuart mill who i'm an admirer of is that this all sounds very good but you it's going to end up in a very elitist place quite fast because you're talking about persons of genius and the that sort of real mental elite, right? I think my answer to that is, like, more progressivism rather than less. So in the case of Mill, yes, we do want very highly educated people, like, you know, having a say, but the, the, the way you constrain that isn't to, like, say education is bad and, like, technocratic knowledge is bad, is to say we want more and more people to have that education, we want more and more persons of genius, and we want to expand the the circle more and more so like i think when it comes to like contemporary governance you see the the contemporary american government does a lot of stuff but it's very non-responsive to like um um like public opinion in a lot of ways so my solution isn't to say we need to start tearing up the powers of the state to get back to an old balance it's that that state needs to be more able to be moved by popular will and more open to new ideas and less locked in uh, particular frameworks and ways of doing things. So that was a little long in meandering. I'll stop there. Well, I agree with what you're saying, Toby, uh, in this sense. I just want to underline uh, some of the things you're saying. Uh, I do believe that when progressivism does have certain limitations uh, on the uh, progressivism becoming merely institutionalized into a bureaucracy that then becomes fossilized into be unresponsive and indeed even secretive and oppressive, uh, the administrative state, if you will. Uh, I agree that the, the, the limitations you've said, including the transparency, uh, is essential. Uh, and I also believe that the, um, uh, the top administrators, uh, the ones who really uh, are extremely intelligent and have a sense of public uh, service, uh, and many of the people who were administrators in the New Deal were precisely this, I think that's the right attitude. Uh, and so once again, I think the New Deal on almost all of its aspects uh, was the best, asp- uh, best example of this. The problem arises here that, as it happened, having gotten my own PhD from uh, Harvard, 
Um, and also in the government department, in other words, one of the premier departments even from the 1930s, uh, progressivism. Uh, and of course, uh, knowing professional schools like the what became the Kennedy School of Public Administration, uh, or Kennedy, Kennedy School of Government. Earlier it was the Litauer School of Public Administration at Harvard, and there were counterparts of this at Yale and Princeton and, and Columbia. I did notice that in the formal courses uh, that were taught in these, uh, in these schools, certainly by the 1960s and thereafter, none of the things that we're talking about uh, were taught. It, the, no, and I also noticed this, that none of the people there ever really talked much about the, the normal person, the ordinary person. Uh, they seem to be kind of uh, vague, indiscreet people, sort of uh, beyond, <laughs> beyond the eastern seaboard, uh, 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 or at least until you got to the West Coast. They were the flyovers, uh, all very indistinct. There was no sense that we should be open to understanding how these people think. It was assumed they didn't think. And this is, by this time, we are on the eve of the great society. So the great society administrators are very different than the administrators of the New Deal. And this is sort of continued. The problem was that even in Woodrow Wilson, there was embedded this idea, the common people really don't know anything and we don't need to pay attention. Franklin Roosevelt was very different. He had a common theme, and I think he actually had a common belief and faith in the common man, a phrase he often used. Uh, and one of, the, and so one of the reasons that people think he had that is because he had had polio as a young adult. And for a, a year or two, he was in total dependency. And it gave him a sense of empathy with people who were weak and dependent. And so, but that was very rare. And I can say with full authority and experience uh, that the way the schools of public administration were uh, teaching courses to the new administrators by the 60s and the 70s, because I was there, I can say the, the conceptions that you put forward and that I also put forward and that FDR put forward in practice, they ceased to exist by that time and became even worse. And here is a, a way, I think, to put it together theoretically. If we were to take the progressivism of Woodrow Wilson, which was very insensitive to the common man and limitation. And then we take the liberalism of John Stuart Mill, the mill that goes beyond just uh, the essay on liberty, that includes the essay on representative government, plus many others. If we can imagine a theoretical combination of Mill's vision and Wilson's implementation, but his implementation limited by the Mill vision, because he was, Mill was a much better philosopher than Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> That's what FDR, without probably having read either one of them, <laughs> FDR did in practice. Uh, and we've lost that sense. So uh, I'm agreeing with you as I progressivism rightly understood. Unfortunately, that progressivism has not been taught 
in the professional schools dealing with public policy pretty much since the 60s. I think, and I, I think I can probably tie this back to foreign policy, I think there's been a kind of, like, erasure of liberal history in that we sort of go, it's John Locke, it's Adam Smith, it's Mill, but only in a sort of negative liberty sense, only in, like, the liberty principle bit, not the stuff where he's arguing passionately for the increased enfranchisement of the working class, and, like, why he was arguing that, and why he thought it was a liberal thing to argue, as if it's just, like, this clear, bright line, starting with Locke and ending in, like, God knows, depending on your tribe, either, like, Hayek or the modern technocratic state. Um, I couldn't agree more. And, like, actually... Actually, I mean, of course it is, because, like, it's human history, and history's complicated, but, like... And so it is a bit banal to just say it's much more complicated than that. But actually, rather than a sort of Whiggish story of liberal ascendancy, I'd almost tell a story of progressive intellectual decline, in that I think you do find that balance in Mill. That, that Mill wants, like, educated people to have more votes, which sounds odd to us. But he was also, you know, at the forefront at the time of the political struggle to enfranchise the working class, as well as women, actually, way ahead of his time. Um, Indeed. And, like, that liberalism, the liberalism of FDR, the liberalism of the Beveridge Report and the NHS in um, the UK, is actually much more theoretically sophisticated than this kind of, like, narrow, emaciated, quite thin liberalism that we have today, that on the one hand you've got, like, the Hayekian vision, which had political ascendancy in, you know, the Reagan and Thatcher revolutions, but... On a, and on the other, what do we even have on the left? Just sort of this thin universalism, don't discriminate against people, we're all in it together, which is fine as it goes. Um, but it's a much less theoretically sophisticated vision, and I think it's a much less appealing vision as something that people actually want to go out and vote for. And I think it's not a coincidence that it has been much less successful in transforming societies than the old, more balanced liberalism, I think. Well, I agree with you uh, that uh, a few minutes ago I mentioned a, that the history of progressivism had a tragic dimension, that the seeds of its own destruction were present there. Uh, uh, and I didn't mean that at the moment they was created, if that had somehow been frozen, that would have been fine. The problem is, there's nothing that's frozen in human uh, institutions, uh, human ideas. There's a life cycle, and the life cycle is normally, as we know, at a certain point, it reaches a zenith, and then it begins to decline. That often corresponds to the institutionalization of an idea. Obviously, if you want to carry the idea on, the ideal on, to the next generation, you have to institutionalize it. Well, that's already beginning to shift the balance between the freshness, the openness of the idea, and the uh, kind of uh, sovereign solidness of the institution. And then a generation or two later, the institution becomes a bureaucracy. 
And then a generation after that just becomes an oppressive organization for its own sake. And so that is why there was this decline of uh, progressivism. I couldn't agree more. Uh, And uh, so that we've reached the stage today that there's no idea or idea left that convinces anybody. That's why the progressive parties, uh, be they social democratic on the con- in uh, Germany, socialist in France, Labour Party in Britain, Democratic Party uh, in the United States, why they just can't inspire uh, with, with their pro- their old-style progressivism that we're talking about. They can inspire people, and they're withering away. And, of course, the conservative parties, which all, for all practical purposes, declined into being Hayek parties, the kind of uh, conservatism of Disraeli or even of... Uh, uh, some of the thoughtful leaders uh, uh, in the 20th century, uh, that kind of, uh, uh, kind of, uh, well, dare I say, <laughs> this is this is controversial. One nation conservatism. Uh, Boris Johnson, of course, has uh, essentially perverted that. But that conservatism disappeared uh, in the time of uh, Thatcher, and 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 the kind of Eisenhower. Uh, or even Nixon, uh, domestic policy, Nixon, a kind of institutionalization of the New Deal uh, in the Republican Party, that disappeared with Reagan. So uh, what you really had is that the conservative parties that had a pretty good balance uh, and the social democratic parties uh, that had a pretty good balance during much of the Cold War period, all of that essentially dissolved into free market capitalism, i.e. big corporations running amok on the conservative side. And then on the uh, kind of progressive side or a liberal side, bureaucracies weighing down. And not surprisingly, the first chance that people could get to vote against that, they voted for the horror shows. In other words, on the one hand, Brexit, and on the other hand, Trump. Yeah, and... um... I mean, I've been saying for a long time that the sort of um, liberal end of history thesis was always a little bit fast off the mark, but like if you ever needed a concrete realisation of that, Brexit and Trump would be that. There's a line in John Stuart Mill that I think encapsulates all of this. He talks about how living truths become dead dogmas. Um, And I think that... that Oh, that's a wonderful phrase. I'll have to remember it because it sums up eloquently my whole conception of the life cycle, the rise and fall of an ideal becoming a, uh, a kind of ideology and then an institution and then down, down, down. Could we um, map... Sorry, I took us down quite a long rabbit hole there. Um, could we map some of that through to foreign policy, though? Because, you know, it, seem, it seems like through the Cold War era, you had a few different, like, motivations and justifications going on for the American empire. You had anti-communism, which was, you know, it's easy to be cynical about it now, but that was a genuinely horrific totalitarian system on the side of the Soviet Union, and that did a lot of work for us in justifying what are we doing with all this power we have? And it's quite easy to say, well, we're building a world free from communism. Like, that's an intelligible justification, you know what I mean? There was also, as we've said, the much more just realpolitik side, in that you're sort of 
um, building spheres of influence like empires have always done. And then there's also the sort of value side where we can talk about liberty and so on. And it, it, it seems like, I mean, am I wrong, but once the anti-communism piece falls away, it's become a lot harder to sort of explain in a coherent way what type of world we're trying to build here. Um, like, we're against authoritarianism, but, like, kind of, not really, we'll work with them. No one's really saying we're gonna, like, tear down the wall. There's no, not those moments. It's just sort of a soft, thin, universalist liberalism of, like, it'd be nice if you didn't commit human rights abuses type of thing, which is fine. But without the anti-communism bit, it's just the realpolitik, and values explanations of it that ring increasingly hollow. I'll stop there. Well, I agree with you uh, as you say that, but I'd like to put in a couple phases in the long Cold War period, uh, which also is the period of the global American empire, in other words, where the American empire expanded from the Western Hemisphere to very major parts of the Eastern Hemisphere, and therefore the entire world, at least the free world, to use the language of the day, telling language, of course. In other words, Western Europe and East Asia. Let's focus on Western Europe. Now, uh, of course, uh, the creation that Dean Atchison in his famous memoir said uh, that he was present at, the creation, uh, the great, uh, the big bang of America reshaping at least Western Europe in its image, of course, occurs from 1945 through 1959, 51. In other words, with the Marshall Plan and with ultimately uh, NATO and with uh, ensuring that liberal democracies are established in Western Europe, uh, especially in the recent, against the recent legacy of fascism and Nazism on the one hand and the uh, ominous threat to the East of communism. So that's the important moment. Now, very importantly, the, it, the kind of leading decision makers uh, and even implementers of the Marshall Plan, and for that matter, even NATO, uh, during this period from 1945, let's say 1951, 52, and then it's all institutionalized by the Eisenhower administration thereafter. This, during this moment, uh, we have many of these people actually having served in the New Deal back home domestically in the 1930s. Uh, early 1940s. And so they're carrying over this sense of balance that I've mentioned. And it was also practical. Remember, of course, the European countries uh, had collapsed by 1945 into the ruins of fascism on the one hand, which is an extreme form of nationalism, and a very big threat of communism on the other hand, which is an extreme form of socialism. In other words, nationalism, fraternity, and socialism, equality, they had, and there were still populations there that didn't want to be fascist after that debacle, didn't want to be communist after all, the Stalinist version, nonetheless adhered to some form of national identity, including religious identity, and that was, that was on the center-right of European countries. And there were people who wanted to be some version of social democrat. Uh, and that was on the center left. Now, 
The policymakers of the United States recognized that. And for decades, they allowed their West European dependencies within the uh, Western alliance system, the Western economic, uh, Western American-led alliance system, the Western American-led economic system. They allowed those countries to have robust parties that had a religious or national identity, such as uh, the Christian Democrats of Adenauer, or uh, in Germany, or of de Gasperi in Italy, and even de Gaulle, even de Gaulle in France. And they certainly allowed robust social democratic, as long as they were democratic, uh, even if they had the word socialist, like in their title, uh, like in France, they allowed the Social Democratic Party of Germany and the Socialist Party of France, and certainly the Labour Party of Britain, to really have their identity. In other words, they made concessions to the reality the national identity, the socialist identity, uh, or social identity of European countries. And this meant for a good part of the Cold War, or at least until the Thatcher and Reagan era, uh, for a good part of the Cold War, the U.S. policymakers, uh, not necessarily what uh, they fully wanted, which might have been a lot more liberty for capitalism uh, from their point of view, but nonetheless, they allowed that, and that legitimated uh, America's leadership in Western Europe, especially given the alternative. Now, at the very end of the Cold War, the last decade, because of, uh, because of uh, the convulsions of the great stagflation of the 70s, then that old balance had sort of become unbalanced and somewhat discredited. And in that void, in that void set of time trying to reestablish the balance, the leading countries in the uh, American-led alliance system, the United States itself, and yes, the UK, always, of course, carrying water in part, if you pardon me, for the US, they, of course, then came out with a full market version with Margaret Thatcher even saying, oh, there's no such thing as society. There's no such thing as society is such a bold ideological statement. It's just like, boom, right there. That's what we're about. Sorry, continue. I mean, it is obviously not just preposterous. It's manifestly untrue. She would never have gotten where she was if there hadn't been a society that she could, of course, rise in. Uh, but, But that's my point. By these two leading countries of the American-led kind of, dare I say, empire in Western Europe, these two leading countries at the same time uh, threw away the old idea we have to make concessions to the national or conservative conception, and we have to make concessions to the social or uh, kind of, uh, yeah, social conception, socialist conception. That was all thrown away. So by the time the Soviet Union collapsed for overdetermined reasons, the leaders, especially the United States, were fully confident the Soviet Union had been defeated by liberalism, pure and simple. That brought about the end of history. And of course, this meant there was nothing whatever to constrain the United States from running amok with its free market liberalism for the next 30 years, and now all of that has come crashing down. And so we're just left. You know, the progressive side has fallen away, um, even, you know, and we're just, like, the only sort of theoretical justification we have, other than just pure power for its own sake, is a sort of thin negative liberty, let's all buy and sell for each other. 
Precisely. And since nobody believes in that, except for the very few that make money from it, in other words, the libertarians and the uh, libertarianism has almost no votes. There are very few voters for libertarianism. But there no, are a few donors. It, it's it's are very far big. and away the smallest ideological quadrant. If you look at like absolutely people so, who are like fiscally conservative and socially liberal, there's there's no one there. You know, there's and the people who are there like own newspapers and stuff. Like it's just not. You know, most people are either generally on the left or generally on the right. But to the extent that people are unbalanced, they tend to be people who are, like, economically left, but maybe, like, more culturally right. But, like, the, the, the people just keep on saying, why can't we just have someone who wants to cut taxes, but is also, like, pro-equal rights for gay people? And it's like, because nobody wants to vote for that, you know? That's exactly right. That, that, but nonetheless, I mean, you're absolutely right. And yet... The donors uh, are able to provide enough ways of masking this to enough voters that you roughly, for example, in the U.S. Congress, you've had this on the Republican side, this so-called Freedom Caucus. Freedom Caucus, which is a pure libertarian thing, large, largely supported by a few big donors, most notoriously, but not only the famous Koch brothers. But the Freedom Caucus is roughly about 15, let's say 1-5% of the Republicans in the Congress. But that was enough to essentially stymie uh, any more kind of sensible, dare I say, <laughs> yes, yes, uh, Republican uh, leadership. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, they've had a lot of veto power. Uh, 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 these donors, uh, but, but the result is no one, either in the Democratic Party, be it establishment wing, we'll call it the Clinton wing, uh, now the Biden uh, wing, if you will, uh, or the more uh, progressive uh, wing, uh, the Sanders wing, uh, on those, uh, uh, those two wings, the Democratic Party, and then on the Republican Party, we have the establishment wing, the McConnell wing, if you will, or, and then we have the libertarian wing, the Freedom Caucus. So we get those four kind of configurations. Now, none of them are articulating a vision that's inclusive of all the members of the society. Uh, and if they can't articulate it for the United States, they can't articulate it for the rest of the uh, uh, of the world. And that is why the American way, the American way, has no legitimacy whatever uh, left in what used to be in the American Empire. And either it's Western European or it's East Asian, and certainly Latin American version. Yeah, yeah, like the middle's fallen out. Um, and then th that narrative, of course brings you to Trump. And, you know, in explaining Trump's rise, you do have to talk about um, race and the way um, that particular parties have changed their coalitions with respect to that. That's a big part of the story. But just staying with the economic side, I did sort of think it was funny in the 2016 primary, a little Shroud and Freuden from the outside, how they were convinced that the way they were going to take Trump down was by saying he's not a real economic libertarian, like he's not a real conservative. 
on these issues. Like, they really thought that was going to be the attack that would stick, and they'd get, God knows, like, Marco Rubio or something in. And, because at the time, he hasn't really governed this way. He's governed much more as a just tax cut for the rich type Republican. But at the time, he was talking a lot about, like, infrastructure and trade and all of this, and Republicans were absolutely convinced that if they just go, oh, he's not a real economic libertarian, that would be like the silver bullet that took him down. And just this sort of, like, slowly dawning horror when they realised none of their actual primary voters cared about that at all. They were in it for cultural conservatism, you know? And But they'd just been so long in this world of, like, think tanks and Fox News hosting gigs and, like... Uh, you know, strongly libertarian legal movements where there's a lot of just hackery and you say what you have to say and that economic libertarianism is absolutely universal and unquestioned there that I think they'd thought it had captured the whole conservative movement writ large in the country. And just this moment of shock they had where they realised nobody cares Nobody cares. You've all been saying this because you've had to appeal to your donors, but Trump's getting so much free media, he doesn't have to do that. And it's not. People don't care about, like, your Hayekian vision. People care about issues of cultural identity and race and religious identity and immigration. And no one gives a shit, dude. Sorry, pardon my French. But there was just that moment that I thought was really interesting, the extent that they'd sort of fooled themselves, you know what I mean? Well, I agree with you, and let me underline that. Now, beginning around, I think, around 2010, for a number of reasons, if I would go off to this or that conference, to this or that, shall we say, provincial city, away from the global cities of the United States, let's say I'm going to a conference in Atlanta, Georgia, or Birmingham, Alabama, or for that matter, San Antonio, Texas, or uh, maybe uh, St. Louis, Missouri, or Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, suppose I'm do- doing that. But in the aftermath of those conferences, I would then rent a car and drive into the rural areas, the small town areas around them. And so I actually, during the period from 1910 to, uh, me, to 2010 to 2016, I actually traveled over a good deal of uh, the small town and rural south and southwest, and a little bit of the northeast. And I met the Trump voter before they knew they'd be a Trump voter. In other words, I was traveling in areas that were manifestly, you could actually take photographs of it, in terms of the boarded-up stores in the small towns, the tumbling-down barns here or there. Uh, uh, I could take photographs of what became the Trump electoral votes, the left-behinds, the hollowed-out heartland. Uh, And I listened to these people. That was much more interesting than me talking to them. I wanted to listen to them. And they began to verbalize all the themes without even knowing it that then Trump would play upon during the primary season. So when Trump swept away the establishment Republicans one after another, because all they could do is say what their donors told them to say, in other words, what you were just quoting them as saying, when when, uh, I, I was not at all, uh, surprise that when these voters finally got a chance to vote for somebody who was speaking their language, that they voted for him. And that the, uh, nor was I a surprise 
that the establishment people didn't understand that until it ran over them. For example, in, uh, when I talk to people who actually live and work in Washington, D.C., or New York City, or in Boston, or even in my own Philadelphia, almost everybody I talk to, be they identifying with the establishment Republican Party or the establishment Democratic Party, almost none of them have ever ventured more than 50 miles inland to the heartland around their particular cities. They are essentially encapsulated in a cocoon of the global city or global wannabe city. New York is a global city. Washington's a global city. Boston in its way. Philadelphia is a wannabe global city. But above all, they know nothing about the people who live 50 miles, 150 miles, 250 miles to the west of them or to the uh, north of them, wherever the hinterland is. Now, in Washington, D.C., these Republicans will be found, of course, on the staffs of the Republicans in Congress, and especially in the, uh, the, the, the conservative think tanks, the American Enterprise Institute, the Heritage Foundation. These people knew nothing about the people who may be only 50 miles away uh, on the eastern shore of Maryland or in northern Maryland or southern uh, uh, Delaware. They know nothing. On the Democratic side, often career bureaucrats. They know nothing. And so uh, they found it amazing in the year 2016 that I could tell them about these people that were sweeping away uh, their particular parties, Sanders then uh, and Trump then, respectively, uh, because they had never bothered to even see, much less listen to these people out there. And now we know we know if we add up the Trump electorate, which seems to be a steady 40% of the American electorate, then we add up the frustrated Sanders electorate that probably was about 20 or 30%. Well, actually, there is a majority of people who feel left behind one way or another. Now, of course, the Sanders way of addressing the left behind is very different than the Trump way, so that's why that 70% doesn't coalesce. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any way you're getting a political coalition there, because even if there that's was right. like some no sort way. of economic, economic populism that they could come together right. on, like attitudes towards race, religion, so on, are just absolutely unnecessary no, opposition. No, no, I mean, I was building to that, yeah, but sorry, I was sorry, just saying... Ahead. Although, in other words, although those two very different ways of uh, thinking on the part of the people left behind make it impossible for a coalition, nonetheless, they agree on one thing, even though they don't know it. They both loathe the establishment of their respective parties. I think there's a weird... So I keep giving my own thoughts here. There's a weird contradiction in how Americans see their government in that we hate it and we know it's broken, but we're not really ready to talk about changing it. Like if someone wanted to come and say, let's, let's whack down a few big constitutional amendments that will like streamline this whole bloody thing, people aren't into that. Even very mild stuff like Supreme Court reform or something like that, or getting rid of the filibuster... People aren't into it, and I think there's this weird thing on both the left and the right of, like, 
you know, what's the old definition of madness? Doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Is everyone sort of agrees that the system is broken, but we just keep electing yet more and more performatively angry people to it, starting, I guess, all the way back with sort of like uh, Gingrich or someone like that, right? Just, okay, let's elect an angry guy to shake up the system and the same thing happens. We just keep electing angrier and angrier people. And at some point the realisation has to dawn that there has to be something new here. There has to be something new either ideologically or structurally because Trump for all that he's very different as a politician, hasn't governed as an economic popularist. In fact, the substantive policies out of his administration, such as they are, are sort of basically what I'd expect any Republican to do. You know what I mean? Like, it hasn't... Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, let go me ahead. address that very last point and then get on to the more fundamental point that you were making. The last point is this. When Trump became president, despite the opposition of the Republican establishment in the primary season, essentially a deal was cooked. Uh, the Republican establishment, led at the time by Mitch McConnell in the Senate and Paul Ryan in the House, essentially told Trump, well, uh, there are a lot of things that uh, you have uh, campaigned on and that we uh, agree with, such as lower taxes and lower regulation." So we can work together on that. Uh, now, there are some things you campaigned on that we don't agree on, such as uh, uh, kind of tariff barriers and immigration barriers. Uh, but we don't need to address those right now. Let's work together uh, on the things that uh, we both agree upon. This is, in other words, the first few months in 2017. Now, Trump said, well, actually, I would also like some infrastructure. Uh, and they said, well, uh, that's okay. Uh, let's do that after we get a tax bill through. Then we'll work together on infrastructure. So, in other words, Trump gave them lower taxes and lower regulation. And then they broke their part of the bargain. And they stymied him on all the other stuff. So that was what was going on there. In other words, they never did intend to allow him to get his uh, electorate what he wanted, even in sense something that everybody should be agreed upon, uh, and that and are agreed upon, let's have more infrastructure, at least where we're living. Uh, they stymied that. Now, turning to the uh, more fundamental thing. Well, uh, there was this idea of an idea whose time has come. The problem in the United States is the idea from a reconstruction of the Constitution, indeed, perhaps, a new Constitution, a whole new constitutional order, that idea has not yet come. Uh, all of the failure of the, of the breakdown, the hollowing out, the life cycle of the American constitutional order as we've known it, uh, uh, continued, of course, amendments and alterations since 1787, uh, 89, uh, uh, that order is breaking down. But the idea to, that will replace it has not yet come. It will probably eventually come. Now, for example, let me give an analogy. Um, Fifty years before Martin Luther began the Reformation in 1517, there were all sorts of critics of the Catholicism the kind of uh, 
uh, hierarchy and, uh, yes, the corruption of the Catholic Church at that time, most famously Jean Hus in Bohemia and others. So they all had their uh, criticism of this, uh, but the idea had not yet come. Then comes along Martin Luther, followed by John Calvin, and they really put the ideas together systematically, and by that time the idea had come, and you got a reformation. But you will have false dawns, or even clouds on the horizon, two or three generations before the idea has come. Just like, to take another analogy, uh, out-and-out kind of socialism as it was developed in the organized socialism as it was developed in the 19th century. Well, before that, we had utopian socialism, a kind of, and that was a kind of primitive version of it. Uh, The idea had not fully come, and then it did. And when the idea comes, then it develops uh, into an ideology, and then into an institution, to quote myself a few minutes ago. And at that time, when when the old order is collapsing, you not only have the idea, but you have an ideology. And then you have an ideology that's institutionalized into an organization. And into that void, the idea that has come then takes power. Well, we're probably a generation or so uh, before that will happen. That's a really interesting analogue. So America's in a sort of, like, pre-Reformation point. I, I like that. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, staying with Trump, um, the, the other thing that was distinctive about Trump in 2016 was, um, at least rhetorically, he took a very different view of um, foreign policy. That was quite a big break, and I think a self-conscious rejection of the, the Bush era. But the reality seems to be a lot more more muddled. How do you how do you view both his challenge to the orthodoxy in the primary and the what what has subsequently happened? Well, I think it has a perfect analogy with my analysis a moment ago of what happened in domestic policy. So let us take the authentic Trump uh, when Trump could be Trump in the primary season. And uh, was obviously had this constituency very much in favor of Trump being Trump. He had his he had his domestic policy and he had his foreign policy. Now, when uh, he actually got elected and uh, and then tried to implement his domestic policy, the establishment in the Congress uh, cooked the deal with him. Uh, in other words, they uh, shall we say misled him. And as long as he helped them get what they and he both wanted, that was fine. And when that, when, when that didn't, uh, when he wanted to get what only he wanted, no, no, they stymied that. There's a parallel in the foreign policy. That is to say, he uh, came in and uh, he wanted to pretty much end, end the forever wars and pretty much withdraw from the Middle East. Uh, and as far as Russia, he wanted to reset that. He did. He believed, uh, and of course, this is an endless debate of why he believed this, but he believed that Russia was not inherently a, an enemy to American interests, and we could ultimately work out an arrangement with that. He believed that the real major threat to American interests was China, and that we really have to focus on that. So that those three big components. In other words, the Middle East, we should largely withdraw from. Uh, the Russia, we should stop having confrontation. 
And instead, we should have a, a genuine, what Obama called, but it turned out it was mere rhetoric, pivot to Asia, i.e. Uh, China. Well, he came in, and the equivalent of the Republican establishment in Congress is the bureaucratic establishment uh, in the government, and especially uh, the military, and more broadly, the various parts of the national security and, and uh, uh, strategic and diplomatic sectors. Uh, and they like having <laughs> U.S. forces in the Middle East. They like confrontations with Russia. And they weren't so antagonistic to China, but they recognized China was becoming a threat. Uh, and so they wanted to continue to have uh, U.S. leadership uh, in all three of those arenas. And, of course, especially using the old alliance systems in Europe, especially against uh, uh, Russia, uh, and uh, this or that aid to this or that uh, uh, informal, not treaty, that's important, ally in the Middle East. Uh, and also uh, kind of working out some kind of better blend of containment and engagement uh, with China, a more realistic policy. That's the policy of the elites. We have to recalibrate, but nonetheless, we should continue to have a lot of commercial, because they make money from that, uh, and uh, relationships with China. But we should have uh, let the Chinese know that we have to have a better bargain, just like we have to know the, the Europeans should know that. So that was the elite policy. Well, actually, just because so Trump, the, the actual policy of the Trump administration and domestic policy is quite different from what he can, campaigned upon. And that difference is many more elements that the domestic elites want, refracted through Congress. And similarly, the Trump policy and foreign policy in, in, during his actual administration is quite different from what it really was. Well, what it's really different from what he had wanted it to be when he was campaigning, and for roughly the same reason. Now, uh, of course, he uses the language about the deep state for the bureaucracy. That's rather fevered. But nonetheless, established bureaucracies on foreign policy and established economic interest uh, in domestic policy, they're so established that they haven't allowed Trump to be Trump. So the way I sum it up, and this is a bit, uh, a bit of an exaggeration, I've actually said, well, for all practical purposes, there's not a Trump administration. There's a Trump White House, and then there's an anti-Trump administration. And the people... What do you make of the, the military leadership really seems to have publicly rejected him recently? I mean, most notably Maddus, but it's been a few people now. Now, they've phrased that in terms of opposition to his handling of the protests. Maddus said that using um, the sort of weird photo op he did where he tear-gassed protesters and then held a Bible upside down, like that whole thing. Maddus said, like, that was the tipping point for him. Do you think that is his, like his root concern, or his, is his root concern and other people like him more about foreign policy and Trump being a danger to, like, the Western alliance or something like that? Well, uh, with uh, James Mattis and with the other figures, and I'll mention a few of them, that have all come up together to criticize Trump, on the handling of the protesting, all come together in various uh, 
uh, statements, op-ed pieces, uh, that sort of thing, in the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, uh, in, and these happen to be people that, uh, although I don't know personally, I've heard virtually all of them uh, give lectures. I've heard several lectures by each of them in different arenas and with uh, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and before that uh, 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 um, Chief of Naval Operations, Michael Mullen, I did know somewhat well and talked with at length when he was Chief of Naval Operations. So I have a sense of their mentalities. And so it's not either or. It's rather that the two come together. That is to say, there's deep disagreement with him, uh, even when he was a candidate, and certainly when he came in as president, deep disagreement on his foreign policy. And then there's a special, sincerely held, disagreement with him on him moving fast and loose uh, about his threats to use the uh, regular U.S. military uh, to repress uh, rioters and things of that sort. There's a, I could go into some details that are extremely important to them that are unimportant to Trump and to some extent often important in the media, including the anti-Trump media. So, so, so they, they have a double disagreement with him. But here is the basic pattern that has evolved, especially since the George W. Bush administration. But there were touches of this even before. Uh, the Uniform Code of Military Justice that governs all military officers, and that was set up in 1947 when the current U.S., the constitution of the U.S. military system, uh, the various services and the way they're organized are set up, that, that prohibits any political statements of a serving military officer. A retired military officer isn't supposed to say anything if they're receiving benefits uh, from the government still, in other words, like pensions. But it's not nearly as enforceable or enforced. Uh, so uh, what this means, uh, since pretty much the, uh, the military was very upset uh, the way the Bush administration was handling the Iraq war, they were very upset about this as the active duty officers uh, at, at the time. Uh, they were, and, but they couldn't criticize uh, George W. Bush or Vice President Cheney or whoever, uh, Donald Trump failed. They couldn't do that publicly. That was illegal. Uh, but So the pattern was that retired officers who had authority, such as commanders of uh, the Central Command, uh, retired officers would then write off ed pieces or somewhat more serious essays critiquing what Bush was doing. And everybody knew they were the, the voice of the successors, the serving military officers. So that became the pattern. It, a particular chapter in the distinctive American way of civil-military relations. It was a new chapter, but it was, it's within the history of American civil-military relations. Well, that's what's happened now with the Trump administration. Even before the uh, whole kind of uh, eruption over the um, the walk, <laughs> the walk uh, from the White House to the church a couple of weeks ago. Even before that, uh, even before that, uh, there was criticism amongst retired officers of, of the Trump foreign policy including former commanders to NATO, at least two former commander, uh, commanders to NATO, were giving public speeches and writing essays, all very eloquent, critiquing what Trump was doing, as well as uh, retired uh, chiefs of staff and that sort of thing. So uh, 
that's the way the military tells the president, you're moving toward a red line. You're moving toward a red line. And if you continue, the serving military officers, not just the retired ones, the serving ones, may make it difficult for you. Now, uh, how they make it difficult, we're not talking about a military coup, Argentine style or Chilean style, but they can make it difficult uh, because they have a lot of allies in Congress. Uh, uh, They have a lot of allies in the media. Uh, They can make it difficult for you. So in the end, maybe you want to step back from the red line. That's the kind of negotiation going on now. That's really, really interesting. So we should see the retired officers speaking out as essentially like spokespeople for the military. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And actually what became remarkable this time, well, there was this walk in the park, so to speak, uh, from the White House across to the church. And Trump arranged to have walking with him was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in combat gear and the Secretary of Defense. Uh, uh, those two were just behind him. It's sort of like he was uh, leading a phalanx. <laughs> yes, yes. So that occurred on that Monday, and it occurred just after he had had an address uh, to, or some kind of uh, arrangement with 50 different uh, governors, uh, uh, some kind of Zoom arrangement with 50 different governors, where he said he was going to be the president of law and order, you're going to have to dominate the battle space, all of that language. And then he personally illustrated that by dominating the battle space uh, between the White House and St. John's Episcopal Church. Okay, so the, uh, the Secretary of Defense, the highest civilian official in the Defense Department, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the highest military official in the Defense Department, were dragooned into walking with him. Well, the very next day or two, they said, well, we didn't really mean it. We misunderstood. And so here you had the serving authorities, the civilian leader and the military leader, saying, well, we went too far. And by the way, (laughs) Trump went too far. And so there you actually had serving officials who, of course, were saying the same thing, but in a shorter way, but clearer way, that now by this time... uh, by today or so, uh, well, roughly, I would say, within a week, actually, within a week of the walk in the park, you had almost a dozen highly prestigious retired commanders um, and uh, military leaders having come out in this or that op-ed page or sophisticated article in the Atlantic or some such thing critiquing Trump, not in the foreign policy, but his complete abuse of the American way of civil military relations. Mm. Do you think that'll have an effect? Like, is that something or, or like? Oh yes, I think I think I think Trump. I think Trump, Trump is stymied because there are uh, there are ways in which uh, well, well, he's stymied in this sense. Uh, now he talked loosely because he didn't understand the distinctions. He talked loosely about using the uh, regular U.S. Army to put down demonstrators, to dominate the battle space, etc. Now, that is hedged in by all sorts of laws and rules, uh, uh, such as the Posse Comitatus Act of 1877, uh, 
uh, I, I could go into this technical details, but there are all sorts of laws and rules that you cannot use the regular army to put down domestic disturbances, but there are two or three exceptions. And Trump could do it if he really wanted to press it. But all these military people, who of course have served in the regular military forces, um, uh, uh, including the Army and the Marines, the ground forces that could be sent in hypothetically to put down uh, demonstrators, uh, they're all saying you can't do this. So what he really has then is the National Guard. But, but the National Guards are normally under the command of the governors. And some of the governors are red governors or Republican governors, and some of them are blue governors or Democratic governors. And so to get those, he would have to federalize, as they say, the National Guard, put them under his control. Well, that also has tremendous restriction. And the blue governors aren't going to allow him to do that. So that means that all he can really do is federalize the red governors, where they might be willing to have him do that. All the more so, since quite a few of the riots have been in blue cities in red states. In other words, in Atlanta, Georgia, and in Nashville, uh, Tennessee, to take two blue cities in red governor's uh, states. Uh, and so hypothetically, he could get those red governors to use their red National Guard, made of small town, rural recruits often, to go into a blue city, uh, Atlanta or Nashville or something else at one point or another. It might be Montgomery, Alabama, or it might be Tallahassee, Florida, whatever. Uh, he, uh, Jackson, Mississippi. That might hypothetically happen. Uh, and then... Uh, but this is a big, big difference than having the U.S. Army come in to all these cities and actually put down the demonstrators. So they're all, And if it were just a bunch of laws, legislation, then, of course, that could all be swept away. But it turns out that the professional military, the, leader, the leaders and the officers, of the regular military forces, and, and, and the most relevantly here are the Army and the Marines, because those are ground forces that can actually occupy, occupy capital cities or other cities, uh, they all have highly internalized, ever since they were in their uh, uh, junior officer training courses, the American way of civil-military relations. And, and, of course, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff recently sent out a letter to all officers in all the military services reminding them their oath is to the Constitution. And that's a way of saying your oath is not to any particular president. It's to the American way of civil-military relations. And the American way of civil-military relations is you do not use the regular military to put down uh, domestic civil disturbances, except under extraordinarily rare circumstances. And this occurred only about two or three times uh, since uh, the 1950s. So it's acted as a practical constraint. Do you think it's going to register and make a difference with the population writ large? Because, I mean, there's always all the caveats about polling and so on, but since the protests have began, his approval rating is down, Biden's lead over him is up quite significantly. Do you think military leadership speaking out against him 
did play some weight, maybe with, like, you know, softer Republicans or, like, Republican-leaning independents, or is it just more... That's a very important question. Of course, it's a question with a moving answer, but let's look at it uh, in the context of a couple weeks or so after the, um, uh, the issue arose. Let's look at it that way. Now, uh, first, we've known that pretty much, uh, certainly since the general election and throughout that almost now four years since the general election, roughly 40% of the population, largely consisting of the left behind that I've talked about before, roughly 40% of the population has been through Trump, up and down, back and forth, right and left. So that's his solid base. Similarly, however, about 50% has been solidly against Trump. And then that leaves 10% that moves back and forth according to the circumstances of the day. Now, the events around the walk in the park, the whole issue of Trump uh, using and misusing and abusing the military, the active military, active duty, regular military, uh, that uh, wouldn't that wouldn't change the opinion of the 50% that's already against him. And, however, it could eat into some of the 40%, because the 40% includes people who are very much... Uh, traditional military, especially in the left behind, because sometimes the best way to get out of being left behind is to go into the military. Uh, so we'll eat into that because, but nonetheless, they will, at the time of the election, since I'm predicting that Trump is not going to have using the military be a big issue in, at the time of the election on November 3rd, uh, uh, th that won't be the primary issue. No, no, it'll be all the other things that uh, they've been behind Trump for anyway. So in other words, I'm suggesting that despite all of this world historical, or at least American historical important thing going on about ever struggle over just what is the American way of civil military relations, this is an extremely important issue. But nonetheless, it's, a, it's not really an electoral issue, I believe, for the 40% that supported Trump and for the 50% that's opposed Trump very consistently on other issues. This means, what will it mean for the 10%? And I think the 10%, that includes a lot of, I think you said, soft Republicans, let's say suburban Republicans, kind of, uh, uh, you know, they want to preserve their property, uh, but they also are open socially to uh, culturally to innovative things. And so that 10% will be appalled by Trump's bluster on the military. So what it will probably do, uh, other things equal, because a lot can happen between now and November 4, uh, 3rd, uh, uh, 2020, but, but in itself, that will simply expand the Democratic electorate. Uh, a bigger proportion of that 10% will go over to them. Yeah, I think that's... I think sometimes we can, people who think about politics a lot, like, overcomplicate it. Like, there's 50%, it might be even higher now, who just hates Trump. There's 40% who love him. Um, I think for a lot of swing voters, it's just sort of like, are things going well? If they are, we'll re-elect the incumbent. Are things a mess? Okay, we'll give this other guy a try. And it's just yeah, like... Yeah, that's right. 
Everything put together, no one can look at it and say, yeah, the country's in great shape right now. And, like, you know, some people will say that's all Trump's fault. Some people will say none of that's his fault. But, like, the people who actually swing around don't, like, go into... Like, you know, the Republican Party got massively repudiated in 2008, whether or not you think it was their fault that there was the economic crash. Things are going badly. We vote the incumbents out. Like, that just does seem to be the norm, you know? I agree with that. Uh, that 10% thinks exactly the way you are saying. And that's why I said a lot can happen between now and the election, because that 10% is focusing on what's happening in the month or two before the election. And we don't know what that's going to be. Uh, we can get surprise packages of many sorts uh, in the month or two before the election. But I'm suggesting, and I think you are concurring, for the 40% that's been behind Trump, as I said, uh, up and down, back and forth, right and left, uh, what's happening in the t- couple months before the election won't change their votes. And for the 50% that's been against him, uh, for roughly the, in the same rhythm, what's happening in the couple months before the election won't change their vote. But for that 10%, what happens, uh, be, they, they are essentially weather vanes. Uh, how is the wind blowing as it blows on the back of their neck? Uh, does it feel good or does it feel bad? That's the way they vote. Um, that's been formalized by political scientists in the concept of the economic business cycle. And the economic business cycle is this. It's not so much important uh, what is the level of unemployment or of uh, or conversely, uh, uh, economic prosperity uh, in the two or three months before election. It's the direction. And if the president can manufacture, and Richard Nixon and his head of the Federal Reserve did do this in the run-up to the 72 election, famous case. But if the president can can kind of fashion an upward movement, uh, then the people we're talking about will be in favor of the incumbent. Conversely, if it seems to be a downward movement, as happened to George H.W. Bush in 1992, then their vote against the incumbent. Even though, by almost all the other dimensions, George H.W. Bush uh, was a very satisfying president, uh, especially on foreign policy at the time and all of that. And so I agree with that. And we, you and I don't know What's going to happen? And moving from such uh, complicated but fundamental issues as the economy, or for that matter, security, who's rioting where and what and how close is it is to me out here in the suburbs, uh, 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 the, uh, putting aside those, there's simply, dare I say, physiology and biology. After all, uh, we, have, uh, we have Joe Biden, who really is showing his age, and then, and apparently, Trump is uh, showing his age. Well, if you have the race between two people that are even older than the baby boomers, this is amazing. Here we have two people from the silent generation running for president. And of course, if we had had Bernie Sanders get the nomination, it would have been the same. Amazing. Now, at that age, uh, anything can happen. No, but even with all of that uncertainty, like, we don't know where the economy will be, we don't know where the coronavirus will be, we don't know where the political situation around the protests or security will be, 
It seems like Trump isn't playing a great hand right now, because if Biden merely splits the 10% with him, he's not getting out from under that. Like, he's, you know, he could lose the popular vote by a few points like he did in 2016. But if it's 55-45, that's a pretty decisive win in our highly polarized age. Like, Trump's gonna need to break, what, seven... 7 out of 10 of that 10%, something like that, maybe even 8 out of 10, and he's going to have to break it in the right way, with the right distribution across states. And that, I'm not saying it's impossible, say we get like a real V-shaped recovery and the economy's roaring by November, that would do it, but he's going to need a lot of stuff to break his way, because like, if we're in the same, if Americans feel the same way about the country in November that they do now, he's He's in real trouble, right? Or am I, am I being optimistic there? Well, I think you're right as far as you go. But let me refract what you've said through a couple sentences you just said within what you said more generally. Let me make concrete that rather abstract thing that I've just said. Now, uh, you did say a moment ago, uh, you were talking about the percentages in the general electorate, and therefore the popular vote. And of course, I, you and I were both talking at that level. But a moment ago, you had the phrase, and the particular states have to break just right. Well, this is important in terms of what Trump is thinking, uh, and also important in terms of probabilities of what will actually happen. Now, I happen to have some friends who in turn have friends who are very much close to the Democratic National Committee and their electoral calculations, and also some to Republican National Committee and their electoral calculations. And they go to this level. Uh, this, they see, both the Democrats and the Republicans, see Trump thinking like the following, and Trump's electoral campaign thinking like the following. Well, the last time around, we didn't get the popular vote, but we got the electoral vote. And that's enough. And That'll be enough the next time around. Now, I think that's too clever by half. But, but after all, that's, that's the way they won the last election. And, of course, they, they're pretty confident they're not going to win the popular vote. And so, therefore, they want to win the electoral vote. Then they're focusing on four particular states. These were states that were right on the margin in the last election or somewhat more Republican, nonetheless, are very important swing states. Those four states are the usual suspects, i.e. Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, and then the one that meant a bit more for Trump, but nonetheless is is also could go either way and also has big electoral votes, Florida. So those are the four states. So the basic idea is if we win the states that are much more predictably red, and we win these four states, that will get us enough electoral college votes to win the election, even though we might lose the popular vote, as we did the last time, but maybe one or two million votes, or maybe even more. So that's the strategy. That's the strategy. Uh, And uh, what that means in regard to particular tactics particular tactics uh, in each of those states, well, that could get down to a very granular level, 
But you could imagine that a lot of people in those states who might be blue-collar labor or small businessmen, people who went for Trump the last time, I'm talking about the, the three Midwestern states, counting Pennsylvania as de facto in this sense, the Midwest, uh, those people went for Trump the last time, but haven't been so pleased with what he's after to deliver this time. If you actually play the law and order card, and look what's happening in those big cities like Detroit uh, and uh, Milwaukee and Philadelphia, well, they, that's the strategy of being Mr. Law and Order, dominate the battle space, etc. So that, and of course, uh, it gets more complicated in Florida, but but there's something similar to that in Florida. And so that's the basic thing going on here. Now, you and I can agree, well, if that's the hand he has playing, that's a pretty weak hand. And I agree. If I had to predict uh, who would win the election, I predict that the Democrats will win the presidential election and obviously the House. And I even think they might win the Senate. The Senate's However, changing. You asked me six months ago, I'd say, I don't think... We're winning the Senate, but that uh, the, the polling I'm seeing right now is showing a huge Democratic right. advantage. So maybe That's the Senate's right. in play That's as right. well. So, 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 of course, you and I have the same sense of prediction. Now, I'd be more confident in my prediction for the 2020 election if I'd had the correct prediction for the 2016 election. Because I, and virtually everybody in my profession, the so-called political science, to say nothing of the political pundits, they thought Hillary was going to win. And I lost a big bet when I woke up the next morning and Trump had won. But this makes me a bit more humble. But nonetheless, uh, I'm using all the political science apparatus that I have. I predict a very big sweep for the Democrats in this election. Uh, but then we ask, well, what could Trump be thinking of? Well, Trump is a different personality than most presidential uh, 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 candidates. Uh, the outer evidence is this. He's the only person in American political history <laughs> that never had actually run a bureaucracy or a party or an army. Everybody else had, had to run some giant nonprofit institution, even public institution, be it a party or a bureaucracy or an army. <laughs> he didn't do that. He was simply a developer. That's an outer clue that he's different. Now, there's something called the Myers-Briggs test, about 16 different personalities. And I had some fun imagining Trump being administered the Myers-Briggs test on the basis of his behavior and attitude. And there's a category within the Myers-Briggs test of the doer. The person, that's the name for a particular kind of person. Others could be the executive or the uh, kind of uh, lawyer or whatever, or the advisor or the, or the uh, scientist, including a political scientist, that's me. But Trump is a doer. And the characteristics of the doer is this. If they want to do something. They want to just make a big, big uh, display, a big event. And they don't think much about consequences. They just want to do something and to be noticed. Uh, and they're risk takers. And even if they don't have a good hawk hand, even if I don't have a lot of capital to build my hotels, I'm going to take risks. Or I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to take risk running in the primaries. Or I'm going to take risk running the government. 
or I'm going to take risk running in the 2020. And even the odds against me, when I'm building my hotels, I take risk. And some pay off, and if they don't, then I declare bankruptcy. What's the problem? That's the way he thinks. In other words, the doer plays a weak hand. That's part of the satisfaction. If you can actually turn a weak hand into a winning hand and, and therefore confound everybody. That's like game theory correct in this situation, though, because if you're running 10 points behind and the sort of battle lines seem fairly fixed, then yeah, you want to roll the dice. You know what I mean? Like, you, yes. there's, not, there's no difference for Trump, really, between That's losing by so 10 dangerous. or 15 points. Like, it could blow up in his That's face, right. but then, so what? He still loses. And so what? Because, you see, if he just looked at it rationally and professionally, that predicts he's going to lose. Like you and me, looking at it rationally and professionally. Well, he doesn't need that. Uh, what he needs is, what's the best way to maximize my risk-taking odds of getting a payoff when nobody else is expecting it? And even I don't expect it. Some people say he didn't think he was going to be elected president. But it was fun. He was doing something. All the inside reporting I've read says that um, he was absolutely, like, floored by it. Like, just couldn't speak for a whole hour. Like, like nobody <laughs> had seen it coming. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, it had been fun. Um, I, I sort of feel the other way. In 2016, towards the end, I did think Trump was going to win. And I remember just, like, a wall of incredulity when I said that. People just... And I think it just comes from this place of, like, I would never vote for him, therefore other people wouldn't. But other people aren't like you, you know? And I think we've That's, sort of... I couldn't agree more. That's right. I think we've sort of overcorrected the other way, where we're looking at all of these polling, and Biden seems to be in the best position for a challenger since... Since polling began, but we we kind of like don't trust it because like we got burnt once in 2016. Um, right. and I, I'm more than happy for that to play out because like I think the last thing the Democrats want to do is get overconfident. You fight for every bloody vote in those swing states and you do not take them for granted, you know. Um, but I don't know. I my my overall read in 2016 was that Trump is a lot stronger than the conventional wisdom had it. My overall read now is that he's even weaker than the conventional wisdom has it. I guess I would. Uh, I hadn't quite formulated it that nicely, but I think I would agree with that. Okay, we've been going. We we ran way over there, but that was a really really. Um, interesting conversation so let's pause there um i really want to thank you for for coming on and being patient with all of uh, my questions and thoughts and tangents um just before you go do you want to take an opportunity to uh plug your book what's it called and where should people go to get it yes um uh, well first i want to say uh, toby uh, i uh, i was delighted you asked the questions you did I think my answers indicated I was not only engaged, but enthusiastic and having good fun talking about the topics you posed because I've thought a lot about them. Now, some of these things are prefigured in my book, which is called The American Way of Empire. But here is a crucial part because the whole idea was the empire was coming to an end. Um, and the subtitle is How America Won a World But Lost Her Way. 
In other words, the American way of empire, how America won a world but lost her way, and she certainly has lost her way, obviously, now. And it's published by a new publisher, Washington Books, but it's available with the usual suspects, especially in the time of the coronavirus, i.e. Amazon, but also Barnes & Noble. So if anybody should want to follow up <laughs> the things I've been saying, they can do it in book form by going to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and they will find my book. And it's both in a hardback and in a paperback and even in the ebook. And uh, shortly coming out will be an audio version. Ah, excellent. So for people who like podcasts and uh, audio material, they'll have that option again. Um, listen, thank you again um, for um, coming on. I wasn't sure how that one would go, because I don't do foreign policy so much on this podcast. Um, but I thought that was really fun and substantive. So thank you so much for being generous with your time. And thank you, Toby, for being fun and substantive. And thank you very much. 